Those of you who have known me over these 18 years of being your pastor have seen the progression in my own thinking and understanding about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reading a long review yesterday on a new book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and in it he is quoted as saying if you don't if you don't obey you don't believe I'm wearing a blue bracelet here if I can find it did you get your blue bracelet all right somebody said what's that about it's the summer sermon series a series of messages from the book of James. We're calling it Retweeting Jesus. We want you to retweet what we tweet to you. And starting a week from tomorrow, we're going to tweet, right, Christy? Every day, Monday through Friday, a phrase from a devotional that you will receive in the worship guide each Sunday. And when you get that tweet, we want you to retweet. Now, somebody said, what if you're not on Twitter? That's okay. We're going to get it to you by Facebook and email and lots of different ways. Whatever your social media, you can retweet it. If you don't have social media, you can send out a group email that gives the little tweet. It'll be less than 140 characters. And Monday through Friday, throughout the summer, we'll be retweeting Jesus. Now, this is Twitter blue, so that's the idea behind the bracelet. Somebody might ask you what the bracelet is about, and you can just tell them, our pastor's preaching from the book of James, and it's about Twitter. We're retweeting Jesus, because that's a fair representation of what Jesus' half-brother does. He retweets the Sermon on the Mount. He alludes to the teachings of Jesus all the time. He's a great gospel pastor, and I think it'll be a joy to go through the book of James this summer. So that's what the blue bracelet is all about. There'll be a bunch of them out in the foyer when you leave, and we'd like you to retweet. I'm in the series Transformed. I'm in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. We've been going slowly through Acts chapter 1, looking at what Jesus did right before He ascended to the Father and what the disciples did right after the ascension. This is immediately after the ascension. Verse 12, chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs. Remember the upper room? They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Wow! Wow! What a prayer meeting with Mary and Mary and Mary, all of Mary's, along with the family of Jesus, James and Jude and the other, the other brothers, all gathered in the upper room. 
we had a prayer committee, you know, that helped us with the move. We knew we had to bathe it in prayer. When I came to the church, they said, well, new pastor, what do you think about our location? Because there had been a discussion going on. I told them I wanted a year to think and pray about it myself. We could all pray together. And in 1997, in the spring, I preached a message in which I said, I believe the finest future of First Baptist Church is at another site. I don't know where it is. I can't predict unfailingly what will happen at another site, but since 1958, at this site, the church has continued to dwindle. And having this long history of ministry at this site, we can predict that if we stay here, we are likely to continue to have a hard time reaching people because we had no, not, not near enough parking for our congregation, for one thing. So we solved the parking problem, didn't we? <laughs> we came out here and built 700 parking spaces. So when you come, you can always find a parking spot, or pretty much, you can find a parking spot at First Baptist New Orleans. We also wanted to get on the map of the city and be visible to our city. Now, in a lot of instances, when you tell people, I go to First Baptist New Orleans, and they say, where's that? And you say, it's the church by the cemetery. They say, oh yeah, I see that. Because when we moved here, 180,000 cars a day went by this interstate. This whole building is aligned toward the interstate so people can see there's a First Baptist Church in New Orleans. So we moved to achieve visibility. We also felt like our location at St. Charles and Napoleon was hard to get to. It took a while, lots of red lights, and it was off the major arteries of our church, of our city. And so we wanted to get on those major arteries, and here we are in the V between 610 and I-10. We achieved something that we didn't know we would achieve when we moved here. Because the great flood occurred a year after we moved in this building. We dedicated the building in August of 2004, and in August of 2005, August 29th to be precise, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and buried our neighborhood in water. Except the rising water stopped right at the lowest thresholds of this, this building. The rising water didn't come up into the building. We had lots of rain damage from holes in the roof and the, the skin was stripped off the building and bent all up by the high winds, but the rising water didn't come in, so this building was alone for a great expanse in that it didn't flood. And we started using it just a couple months after the great storm. And not only we, but the mayor wanted to come. And the Louisiana Philharmonic wanted to come. And lots of folks started using this building, and we had all kinds of civic and social and government events here that used to be hosted in other venues that were ruined by the storm, and so they came here, and our entire parking lot, and all of this space where you're sitting was often full of people sleeping 
we deployed 21,000 volunteers from this site into the flood zone in the years after Hurricane Katrina. The greatest, the largest worshiping congregation among Southern Baptists in the state of Louisiana was Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. And one of the things impossible to know that God allowed us to do in this new site was to accommodate that great church after their facility was entirely destroyed. And for two and a half years, Franklin Avenue Baptist Church met here for worship and Bible study and had their offices here. We did women's ministry together and men's ministry and prayer ministry and musical events and medical events together, and we still do lots of things together. They became our very special sister church, sister congregation. And God used the testimony of that partnership in ministry to speak to our mayors, Nagin and Landrew, and other leaders who would mention it in their speeches and talk to us about the partnership between our congregations. And it was a great thing that God did. Do you know Fred is going to preside over his final Southern Baptist Convention as the first African-American president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, next week. It'll be June uh, 10th and 11th in Baltimore. And I'm going to be there as he presides over that convention and am blessed to be a friend and a partner in ministry with this great pastor. God did so many wonderful things. So many churches died in Katrina. But for our congregation, we had an opportunity, though we lost hundreds of people, we had an opportunity to go into the community with practical deeds of kindness and love that to this day are remembered by people who are in the church, outside of the church, and part of this city. We prayed a lot. God increased our prayer life through Hurricane Katrina, didn't he? We knew we were entirely dependent on him. When Jesus told the disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, they huddled in the upper room. Find an upper room, would you? If you want transformation to occur in your life, if you want to be spiritually strong and the person God's called you to be, whoever you are, whatever your profession, whatever your age, find an upper room. An upper room is a space that's off the beaten track when you're in it for prayer. It's a space where you can privately talk to God without interruption. The upper room wasn't on the ground floor where the pedestrian traffic went back and forth in the old city of Jerusalem. They had to go upstairs, and so there was a seclusion and separation to the upper room, and you need such a space in your life. The space is important where you pray. If you have a place where you pray at a table, in a chair, at a bedside, if you have a place where you pray, the place itself reminds you of your prayer life. And we need those geographical markers, those space markers in our life. So I'm asking you this morning, where's your place of prayer? Have you got an upper room? We put our offices on the third floor. I like it up there. It's a little remote, but we often pray in our office area 
And when we do, we feel uh, free from interruption and, and the traffic that's in the building because we're on the third floor. I can also stand at my windows and look out and see downtown New Orleans. And I pray for the city. From that vantage point, I like the upper room. Have you got a place identified in your house where you live, where you pray? I tell you something else that Jesus did for these apostles. He made for them an appointment of prayer. He told them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. And so they gathered in this place, this upper room, with an appointment to wait. And as they did, they constantly prayed. Do you have any prayer appointments? Maybe you have a daily appointment of prayer. You ought to have a daily appointment of prayer. Do you pray in the morning or do you pray at night? Or do you pray both times? You need to have an appointment with God. A place where you pray and a time where you pray. Make a prayer appointment. Now listen, moms and dads, grandparents, listen to this. You can teach your children and grandchildren that prayer is a part of everyday life if you will consider every mealtime a prayer appointment. Your grandkids will learn how to thank God for the food at your table if you'll make it a prayer appointment. If you'll just pause for a moment before you dive into the food, even if you buy it at McDonald's, all right? Even if it comes to your door from Papa John's. I know I shouldn't be advertising for people, but look, whatever it is, however you get your food, just make an appointment. We're going to pray. It's an appropriate thing. Jesus taught us to do it. Heavens, we just did it. He took the bread and gave thanks. You think that's the only time he took the bread and gave thanks? He did it all the time. You read through the Gospels and you'll see Jesus taking the bread and giving thanks when he feeds the 5,000. It was the practice of his life, the practice of his disciples. It ought to be your practice too. Why hurry through your meal without pausing to thank God for it. You say, well, I eat in public places, restaurants a lot. It's all right. If you'll make an appointment to pray, you can stop for a moment and give your thanks to God and go on with your meal. We need this in our lives, people. This is not incidental. It's not inconsequential. It's important. You need a prayer appointment. When you sit down to eat, when you get up in the morning, before you put your feet on the floor, I don't know how many people have told me they have a prayer appointment. When they wake up in the morning, before they ever get out of bed, they say, good morning to God. Thank for the day's rest, for the night's rest. Bless the day's activities. And then they put their feet on the floor. For years before I went to bed, I, wrote, I reached for my Bible on, on a little stand there, and I read the scriptures and prayed. That was my time with God. Times change seasonally in your life. What works in one season of your life 
may not work in another. But the task is to find the place and make the prayer appointment. That's the task, whatever season it is in your life. It's a busy season. It's a season when your kids are in school, or it's a season when you have preschoolers, or your grandparents, and that's a season of life. Whatever the season is, you make a prayer appointment, you find the time to pray. Sometimes you need special appointments in prayer, like they had here in the upper room. This is not ordinary life. They are setting aside 10 days here when they are not doing normal activities. They are in the upper room. They are praying constantly. They are all together. And it's a different experience for them. You need an appointment to pray on an annual basis maybe where you pull away. We have four people right now that are on their way to Africa. They've dedicated this span of time to doing mission work. They're going to pray together. They're going to teach God's Word. They're learning the lessons. They're going to the people that we love. They're caring for them. We have a a week coming up when the children will go to camp and the youth will go to camp, and it's going to be a special week for them. They're setting it aside just to be with God. You need that kind of thing on an annual basis. You need not just the daily appointment, not just the weekly appointment where you come into this place to pray or you meet with your team to pray, but you need that annual getting away, pulling aside. You say, well, I can't afford to do that with my schedule. Maybe it's something you can't afford to miss. Maybe you need the retuning of your heart worse than the money you're going to miss where you pull aside and say, God, I want to dedicate this time to you, and this is your time. The Scripture says we ought to pray constantly. These folks were in one accord. That's not a Honda, by the way. I heard somebody say that was a Honda. They were all in one Honda. In the old Bible, it says they were all in one accord in one place, all right? But it's being together in heart, all right? They're together. They're praying together. They're praying constantly. Okay, let's talk about the constant prayer for a minute. Yeah, you can do that, you know, when it's a special moment and 10 days and you're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come and and it's all wonderful and powerful. You can do that, but what about normal life? Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we ought to pray continually. It's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Maybe like number three or four. Pray continually. Somebody said pray without ceasing. That's one translation. How do you do that? If we're going to constantly pray in the normal routine of life, how do we do that? We got to strike up a dialogue with God where we practice His presence. So when we get in the car and we burn lots of gas and we travel lots of miles, when we get in the car, we're thinking about the appointment with God that we have, continuing the dialogue with God, even when we're behind the wheel, it's safe to do. We don't want you retweeting behind the wheel, but you can talk to God. All right? 
and praying in the office and praying in the normal routine of life. Somehow, if we're going to pray continually, we got to pray while we're in motion. We disciple in motion, right? We pray in motion too. Make it a prayer when you go out Wednesday to feed the homeless. Make it a prayer when you go to Rivard or you go to OPP. Make it a prayer when you show up in the closet to pack the food for the kids. Make it a prayer as you sit down to teach ESL. Make it a prayer when you go. Dialogue with God. Let God be part of all that you do. It'll change your behavior. It's transformational. If you have a continual dialogue with God going on, it's going to change how you think, how you see the world, how you look at your activities. There may be some places where you don't want God tagging along that you show up. And God may take those places out of your life because it's not right for you. There may be some things you do that you don't want God looking over your shoulder. But if that's true, maybe those are things he wants out of your life anyway. Pray continually. It's transformational. They were all together. Have you tried together prayer? Guys, I want to talk to you for a minute, all right? Sometimes women are better with words. It's true, I think. Most wives can win the argument. I think they do. I think guys will, guys will pull back and they'll just shut up. I think typically women are good with words. And sometimes they'll pray in public more readily than their husband. They'll, they'll pray at the table more readily than their husband. But guys, let's not be intimidated with prayer. Prayer is you talking to God. It doesn't have to be rehearsed. There's no formula you have to memorize. You don't have to get it right. All you have to do is say, God, we're glad to have this food. God, we're worried about our grandson. God, we've got this financial situation, and you speak it out loud. Here's the wonderful thing about praying together, okay? This is transformational. It'll change your marriage. When you pray together, you discover what's on the other person's heart. And often, it's a surprise. You start praying together, and you think, I didn't know Janet was thinking about that. I didn't realize she was worried about that. You pray together and your soul is revealed to the other person as you sincerely ask God about what really troubles you, what you're really anxious about. It's a way to discover even more of one another and to be together in the journey of life. Praying together is powerful. It's great in a marriage. It's great among friends. If you've got Christian friends that just pull aside when somebody's in trouble and say, let's just pray together. I'm so glad I work in a place where we pray all the time. We actually have, I counted up on seven different appointments of prayer in a week on the third floor here. And sometimes we just pray. <laughs> and we all pray and we voice our prayers to God. And, and it's a wonderful experience praying with this staff that I love. And we love each other, in part because we pray for one another. There's a bonding that happens when you pray together. You ought to try it. 
You ought to say, you know, I'm going to do it. We're going to pray together. I'm going to pray with my fiance or pray with my girlfriend or boyfriend or I'm going to pray with my friend or with my spouse. And we're going to make prayer part of what we speak out loud in our home and at the table and experience the bonding power of prayer in your life. I want you to pray for First Baptist New Orleans. I want it to be part of your daily practice of prayer. I feel carried along and buoyed up by the prayers of people. I will never forget, ever, ever, until I have Alzheimer's and my brain goes gone, all right? I'm not going to forget all the people that prayed for me and prayed for us when Graham was in the hospital, my little grandson. And we started getting messages of prayer. And pretty soon, the prayers were coming from every continent on earth. And people were praying for us in their homes and in their prayer groups. And we felt carried along by the power of prayer. You know, that testimony was so strong right here in our city. It affected my friends out there in our community. And the story of praying for Graham is going to be in the newspaper yet again. They're going to start running excerpts of the book that I've written, and two of those excerpts are going to be about Graham in the hospital and praying for him and what we hoped and longed that God would do for this little boy, our grandson that we love. Here's how I want you to pray for First Baptist New Orleans. Pray that we will worship with our lives. Pray that we will go to the need that God shows us. Pray that we will teach for transformation of those who hear. Pray that we will be disciples in motion. I like that. Pray we'll be disciples in motion. And pray that we'll not be afraid, but we will embrace the future. It is so empowering, like we have sung this morning, to have the expectation that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for us. So pray that we'll embrace the future every day. We will be a people full of faith, full of wonderful anticipation and expectation about the future because Jesus is coming back. And that is our fundamental orientation toward the future. Not predictions of chaos, not predictions of disaster, but predictions that Jesus is coming back and all things consummate in him. Pray that we will embrace the future as a congregation. Ten years seems like a long time, but it's gone by like the blink of an eye, hasn't it? And all of a sudden, it's ten years later. I can't hardly wait to see what God has planned for us in the years that lie ahead. And I know this, the changes he wants to make in me, in you, in us, and in our community are undergirded by and energized by and mobilized by prayer. Bow with me, please.
Maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You've been thinking about it. You just never did. Would you just pray right now? Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sin. I want you in my life. I open my heart to you. Would you invite Christ who died and rose again? Would you invite him into your life? Maybe you've been saved, but you've not been baptized. In just a moment, why not come and say, I want to follow Christ in believer's baptism. Maybe you need a church home. And God is prompting you to join with this family of faith to accomplish his kingdom purposes in this community. God, have your will in us, we pray. Amen.